Chapter 9 of Silly and Its Legends by Henry James Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 9. Tresco. Many years ago, in company of a very dear and long-lost friend, I was passing over the Lago Maggiore in one of those covered boats which Byron compares to a coffin clapped in a canoe. The day was wet and gloomy. Our little bark was too full to contain us all under the awning. Among the passengers there chanced to be a French gentleman, or rather a Frenchman, and his bride, a pretty and delicate woman. When the rain began in earnest, the gallant Gaul squeezed himself into a place under cover, taking with him all his wraps, and leaving his wife to the sole protection of a small parasol. We gave up to her one of our seats, and it was quite touching to see the warmth with which the worthy husband thanked us. After a little while, the mist rolled away from the bosom of the lake, Shadows and gleams of pale light floated over its surface. Then the blue haze of the sky grew more distinct, and the sun of Italy came forth, and a solar bella lay before our eyes, glittering with dew, and bathed in the glories of a summer day. There are scenes in our lifetimes that strike us forcibly, and then seem to die, and, as it were, be buried, embalmed, in the freshness of their memory. They are apparently forgotten as though they had never been, but long afterwards, perhaps at some great distance, with seemingly nothing to form a link between the present and the almost ideal past, some accident calls forth the associations that are sleeping only, not dead, and our impressions of other days arise again before us with all the fidelity of visible life. It is perhaps a glimmering or a reflection of the gift of immortality which we inherit, with the likeness and after the image of him who made us. It may be a fine sparkle of his omniscience, a fragment of the ruin of our angelic nature, a shadow from the closed gates of paradise, but so it is. Sometimes unexpectedly a scene of our old existence glides back and forms part of our busy now. This happened to me today. When walking in the gardens of Tresco Abbey, I was again in imagination at Isolabella. The flood of years that formed up to that moment an impossible barrier between me and it was swept away. The life of other days came back with a gush of young feelings and a warm remembrance of one who is now no more. I realised Longfellow's beautiful idea on passing over the Rhine alone in the same boat which had formerly borne three happy comrades Take, O boatman, thrice thy fare. Take, I give it willingly, for, invisible to thee, spirits twain have crossed with me. In saying so little of Tresco Abbey and its lovely gardens, I put great violence on my feelings. Footnote. The geranium hedges are so magnificent, being in some places from fourteen to sixteen feet high, almost to verify and realise the pardonable boast of one who had the honour of the islands at heart, and was reproached with their want of wood. Indeed, we heat our ovens with our geranium faggots. Footnote ends. But I am bound both in courtesy, in gratitude, and as a matter of justice to consult the wishes of others, and in deference to them I pass over in silence much that I should otherwise have been delighted to notice and to praise. It is due to myself to say so much, and it is equally due to others to say no more. Footnote. 
my friend, Mr. J.G. Moyle, the resident medical man here, must pardon me if he is the unlucky exception to my general rule of avoiding all mention of names. His great talent as an artist is so well known to his friends that any praise of mine would be superfluous, but as an act of gratitude I cannot help saying that he has presented me with a work of his which I value as much for the kindness that prompted the gift and for its intrinsic worth as for the associations it recalls. It is an oil painting of Tresco Abbey taken at sunset. The building and the landscape around are bathed in the purple haze of twilight, while its soft glow is caught and fixed upon the canvas with a spirit and a dreamy poetical beauty, the effect of which it is hardly possible to describe. End footnote. The relative size and importance of these islands have changed materially, even since the days of Leyland, who speaks of Tresco as the largest of the group. It was then doubtless united to Briar and Sampson on the one hand, and perhaps to St. Martin's on the other. Now it is not more than six miles in circumference. Its population has equally diminished. It must have been very numerously peopled in former times, from the visible evidence of sepulchral remains, though Pliny says there was a prejudice in favour of an insular burying place, but it is difficult to account for the falling off in the number of the inhabitants and of the inhabited houses. Troutbeck says that there were, within the memory of man, only twelve families in Tresco. There were, in his time, seventy-four dwellings. Now the population is about four hundred and fifty souls. Samson, Briar and Tresco number together six hundred. The evidence of ancient populousness is too strong to admit of doubt or contradiction, but the causes of decline are beyond man's power to trace. History is utterly silent, and tradition nearly so, but we cannot hesitate to believe that at no very distant period many, if not all, of these isolated rocks have formed one great main land teeming with wealth and richness. Whether an earthquake has wrought this melancholy change, or whether the sea gradually rising has submerged the lower grounds, it is impossible to say. When the tide is out, says Troutbeck, a man may walk from St. Mary's to St. Martin's, and from thence to Tresco. Ruins of houses, as well as the remains of hedges, are frequently discovered beneath the sand, many feet below watermark. In the middle of Crow Sound, a fine regular pavement of large flat stones is seen, about eight feet under low water at spring tides. But it is useless to dwell further on this point at present. Tresco, as the seat of government, is rising fast in power and prosperity. The first thing I saw in it was a steam mill. The next thing was a servant in livery, kindly sent to meet and conduct me to the abbey. Dogs of a rare breed were basking in the sun upon the broad road before the gates. Pheasants rose upon the wing and flew along the margin of the great pool, which, covering fifty acres and upwards, reflected in its bosom the hill, rich with gorse in full bloom, and with exotic shrubs. As I walked onwards, fancy drew me away from the present to the times of Eld, when a great continent occupied the site of these romantic rocks and vales. A turn in the carriageway brought me inside of the house. There, before the Reformation, stood perchance a far loftier fabric. Though attached to the monastery of Tavistock, the Abbey of Tresco was not yet inferior to some of the proudest religious establishments in England. As I looked upon its successor, I recalled many circumstances connected with its records. The reader will, I hope, pardon me if I turn aside from passing events and from the realities of day to day to lay before him a legend of Inniscore or Tresco called The Knight and the Dwarf. End of chapter 9. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, 
Gold Coast, Australia.